Welcome back, everyone. This is Austin Roberts. Here on the Ecosiv Podcast, we engage leading thinkers in conversations about the kinds of transformations required to create a more sustainable, peaceful, and just world. We bring you today's episode in partnership with One Project, which is a nonprofit initiative working globally with communities to design, implement, and scale new forms of governance and economics that are equitable, ecological, and effective. The focus of this episode, along with several others to follow over the coming months, is to elevate themes of the recent book, The New Possible, through a series of dialogues on global systems change. For more information about The One Project and The New Possible book, please check out the links in the show notes for this episode. In the conversation that follows, Andrew Schwartz talks with Michael Steger about the intersection of psychology and economy for an ecological civilization. And now, here's Andrew and Michael. Well, welcome to another episode of the EcoCiv podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Schwartz, co-founder and vice president of EcoCiv. It's a privilege to have with me Michael Steger. Uh, he is founder and director of the Center for Meaning and Purpose and professor of psychology at Colorado State University. Uh, he also serves as extraordinary professor by Northwest uh, University in South Africa. His research uh, is going to be a cool focus for us today, where uh, he focuses on well-being uh, and meaning in life, psychological predictors of physical health and health risk behaviors, as well as facilitators and benefits of engaging in meaningful work. And that's the a, a huge piece of what we want to talk about today is this notion of meaningful work. Um, today, we'll be talking about the intersection of psychology and economy broadly speaking, for an ecological civilization uh, with a special focus on reframing work for the long-term well-being of people on the planet. So no minor task before us today, but thank you, Mike, for joining me. Yeah, it's a pleasure. I'm sure we can nail this in a couple minutes and then just knock off for coffee. Yeah. So. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, so uh, coming at it from this perspective of ecological civilization um, on my end, so I mean, we're thinking the long-term well-being of people on the planet, reframing the systems and structures of societies, right? So it's it's rethinking sort of how humanity lives on this planet, our civilization, sort of from top to bottom, so all sectors of society, um, and to do so with an ecological framework um, that thinks not only about sort of the well-being of trees, but also the, the relationship between peoples, um, and people are more than just uh, sort of zombies roaming around, you know, just, just flesh, right? Uh, we have a psyche, uh, psycholo psychological uh, needs, and it's all wrapped up into sort of what it means to be a human. What's the role of meaning in life? Uh, and what role does it play in human well-being? So first I'll say that one of the biggest, uh, one of the biggest pivots that we make in our, in our minds when we start moving away from theology or philosophy to tackle meaning into psychology is that we kind of give up on the idea that we're going to have, uh, you know, an empirical answer to the big questions. So we're just like, that's that stuff, you know? Uh, I don't know what, where the universe came from. I don't actually know if it matters, right? So that's the psychological perspective we're working with. So it's not, you know, you said it right, it's not the meaning of life, uh, you know, thunderbolts from the cosmos and all that sort of stuff. It's meaning in one life at a time. So it really does, hopefully open people up to thinking about why am I here? Like what, how do I construe my position in this world, my responsibilities, my opportunities and 
and, and it sets before each of us a, a few different tasks, but one of which is, is really, um, I, I think, well, two, two of which are really consistent with your lead-in. One is that we have to kind of create as we go our, the, the map that we use to navigate through life and or this story for preferred that metaphor, but we're putting stuff together all the time. Uh, and meaning in life asks us to try to take that seriously and to try to do that intentionally. So we can create as we go through life, the best kind of map with the most accuracy, but also the, hopefully the best destinations. You know, not all just going to Vegas, which is not my kind of city, but that's okay if that's yours. Uh, you know, and then, uh, yeah, the second thing it asks us to do is to look outside of ourselves and look beyond right now. So, so that's kind of an idealized idea of what theorists and you know and you know typers like me think is going on in people's minds when we get them into the, the space where they're considering meaning. How do I understand what what the universe is like and my role in it, and how do I keep those huge ideas present? What am I going to do with my life? Uh, as I make little decisions every day, as opposed to, you know, running around like a zombie and, you know, just, I've got a lot of pet peeves, so we don't want to get too far into it. But like, I think that my <laughs> pet peeve these days is the fact that everyone is using um, the, the, the door buttons to open doors that are intended for folks uh, who are, are mobility challenged or in wheelchairs. And they're just using them because it's more convenient. And not even thinking that that's like, that's CO2 straight in the air. That's electricity that was just used for no, literally no reason. 22-year-old healthy people are making these decisions because if you ask them, is that a wise decision? Does, does that fit with who you are and what you're all about? They'd be like, no, but how do we live so that we're not crushed by the realization that we have a huge responsibility just breathing and living and, and desiring and hoping and uh, you know, trying to be inspired by something in life and, and adding our contribution to it, but also that we're not just wasting our time pushing buttons until all the buttons don't work anymore. Mm. I think you, you opened up a lot there, uh, talking about sort of value and, and meaning, uh, you know, what makes life worthwhile. Uh, the fact that we're interconnected, um, that it's we're not just sort of roaming through isolated, um, that our, we have choices and those choices have consequences, uh, not just for ourselves, but for all of those around us and that are part of this web of life. Um, yet at the same time, what you study seems to me to be uh, qualitative in nature. We're talking about the quality of life, the quality of experience, uh, such that well-being and meaning have some sort of positive valuation toward that. So how do you quantitatively measure something that's fundamentally qualitative. So for, I, what I'm thinking here is like, you have, uh, like many people talk about uh, job statistics, uh, unemployment rates, uh, you know, what's your minimum wage, and they use those sort of metrics to say how good is our economy doing. But now we have others that are part of a movement that are promoting an economy designed around the framework of well being. And part of that involves putting together uh, an alternative to GDP measurement to maybe some sort of like well-being indicators, um, the Kingdom of Bhutan as happiness index. Um, I guess what I'm wondering is um, the yeah, it's this sort of this blending of quality and quantity, um, measuring something that tends to be very individual and personal. Um, 
I mean, is, is there something like a collective meaning? Um, is there a way to, to, to evaluate whether or not uh, meaning is improving or, or, or decreasing within the societal context? Um, yeah. Yeah. I think we start with the low hanging fruit and, you know, we're psychologists. So we, we believe that people have mental lives that occur in their heads and they can report about that to us. So, uh, you know, like any other question you would not want to ask of a person, all we had to do is try to figure out what are some convenient questions to ask people about meaning that will give us useful information. So I actually started on the quantitative side, uh, you know, in terms of, you know, how meaningful is your life was essentially asking a bunch of different variations of that question and you know, trying to find within theory and within people's lived experience, what were the types of content or ideas they tended to think about when we asked them to think about meaning and then including those and populating questionnaires and scales with those concepts. So then, um, you know, right now, or if we take, take the example of meaningful work, for example, the the there are a few different ideas floating around, but they, some show up enough that we just say, well, if we're gonna measure meaningful work, we should include this. So one is my work has a point, it's not pointless. Uh, it feels meaningful. Okay, well, that's pretty easy. Uh, another element of that is like my work meaning and my life meaning don't, don't conflict. They, are, they actually help each other, they enrich each other. So that's, that's in the questionnaire. And my work should make some sort of contribution to some greater good beyond myself. So that's the thing. So, you know, the, the basic strategy is like, is your life meaningful? Yes or no? And then we, we just get, we, we, we work with the format. And so we've got robust tools that, that have a little bit more depth to them. And that's, that's how you get really fascinating data um, that indicate people live longer. People are more resilient to Alzheimer's disease. They help each other more. They're not more responsible, you know, like all these sorts of interesting things that's with those type of data. But you can also do the other, you can also go in the other direction. In fact, I, I did a qualitative study that was non-linguistic even. I gave people cameras and said, go take photos of things that make your life feel meaningful. And then we tried to code those and those were a mess, but likely we'd ask them to describe what they took a picture of. So the parking lot uh, that was meaningful to someone somehow was about trying to find beauty in mundane things, right? So then you get these beautiful stories that unfold and you decide, like, do I really want to know one person's story? Or do I want to see where uh, the joining part, the joining moments are, and the common ideas are across humanity? So usually because you're trying to explain big phenomena, you start with all of the world as much as you can get. And then you know, <laughs> when you have time later on, you, you really dive deep into individual stories to see a little bit more of the interplay and maybe even where those, some of those ideas came from. Yeah. So do I understand right that you've actually worked to develop uh, some tools for measuring meaningful work? Yeah, um, I've developed tools for meaningful work, meaning in life. Uh, and, you know, you can, those are my two franchises, I guess, of free things that I make no money off of. Uh, you know, <laughs> but like there, these, there's tools out there and you can create a bunch of different ways of looking at that. So, so it's of interest to some people to just take the 30,000 with you and, and say, is my life meaningful overall? But you can also ask someone to report that every day or even right now. Like, does your life feel meaningful to you right now? Or even does this moment feel meaningful to you right now? So you can kind of tweak it. And then the job on some of my, like my end is to show that the statistics and the, all the links of prediction look like what theory and previous research say so that when people are using these tools, they, can, they don't have to reinvent the wheel each time. They can just 
plug something in. So, you know, you can talk about, as you said, like the sort of macro, like, you know, meaning in life. Um, and I feel like sometimes when we talk about human well-being, it could sort of have that abstractness to it. But, um, I mean, concretely, what do you see as the role of, of meaningful work uh, for human well-being and human flourishing? Yeah, well, there's a, there's a dark side to every good thing, right? So when we think about... <clears throat> When we think about what our society rewards, broadly speaking, it's the ability to um, make, move money around. Like that's the most important thing that our society values. And any way that makes that occur um, is rewarded with, with more money, you know, but everything requires money, it seems like. So um, we, we live in this world that, that's highly transactional, that, that pushes us to be... Um, sort of amoral creatures in a lot of ways and to accept all sorts of bargains in order to acquire this, this, this commodity that makes everything move. And that creates, um, that creates some sort of inevitable propositions and some, and some ideas that just, that just infuriate me. You know what I mean? Like, uh, like the idea, like, well, I was just doing my job or it's business. It's nothing personal. It's just business. Like those two phrases um, never cease to shock me and dismay me. As if, as if we're allowed to not be human or take no responsibility for our lives, our decisions, or anything else in our, in our existence for, for eight hours a day or nowadays, 24 hours a day. That, to me, that is the most meaning-denying uh, meaning thing you can say is that impactful things you do in the world have nothing to do with you somehow through the magic of receiving a salary for it. So, so that's sort of the backdrop of a lot of this stuff. And if you completely flip that around and you say instead, what I want to be doing in the world and the way I'm going to have to sort of exist in a way that gets my kids clothes or has a roof over my head or maybe even allows me to enjoy things from time to time. You, if you start with who you are and, and what impact you want to have on the world, then the then I think the door opens to have meaningful work be almost the, the most tangible part of meaning, a meaningful existence, a meaningful life and well-being that, that there could be because it is the thing you've decided to dedicate yourself to being really good at, put out in the world and have as, in a sense, a public face. And if that's you, if that's you wanting to make something good happen, I think that's, that's potentially an antidote to some of the insanity that the incentive system around us seems to push us towards. Yeah. So I'm trying to imagine what it would look like um, to have uh, a society that put meaningful work as a, a top priority. Um, so for example, like if, if we were to dream together, we could imagine our world, let's say 50 years from now, and uh, the uh, let's say just America has uh, made meaningful work a top priority um, for its. So I don't know exactly if that just is like through laws or or just as, as a community, but you know whatever. We're imagining the future, right? So, what do what does the world look like, right? What do our labor policies look like? What kind of jobs do people have? Um, is nobody a janitor because nobody finds that meaningful or does somebody find it meaningful so we can keep it going? Like how long is the work week? Um, is it vacations all day, every day? Um, 
do we get rid of daily commutes um, or you know can some people find meaning uh, in sitting in traffic uh, what do workplaces look like is it you know are only everybody has a corner office with a window nobody's got cubicles we all work outside we all work I just I'm, I'm just if you could paint the picture for me what would the future of work look like in this a well-being world yeah well I don't want to be too like my uh, amateur idea of postmodernism, I don't, I don't want to say like you're already accepting some uh, propositions from the non-meaningful side of things. Such do as it, do it, yeah. Challenge the question itself, yes. I, yeah, so I just think I love the idea of, of trying to run with things. So, so on the meaning end, I get questions a, a little bit like the janitor question that you had, right? So, um, which is that there is a heritage, like the idea of meaningful work kind of grew out of calling which was uh, like a Protestant Reformation idea um, saying that, hey, you don't have to be a priest uh, in the 1400s to have to do good work. I mean, it's arguable that a lot of the, uh, that I'm Catholic myself, and but I've been reading a lot of Dante lately, and he, he, Dante at least says some of those folks were corrupt and a little bit too rich, right? So we'll just say Dante was right. And then Luther came along and was like, you know what, you don't have to be gilded and claiming the word of God to do. You can do good work uh, through all sorts of means, but it was, you had to be good. You couldn't be like a good uh, sex worker. You couldn't be a good executioner. You couldn't be a good something or other. You had to be doing like legitimate, good, just, noble work, whatever that meant culturally. So we bring that to, to today and we say, uh, yeah, so nurses, teachers, uh, doctors, philanthropists, well, not philanthropists, but like people work for the philanthropists, uh, you know, like charity workers, um, humanitarians, they do good. They've got meaningful work. Um, accountants, technicians, cleaners, the people who get the carts from the parking lot of the supermarket, they can't. That's dirty work. That's silly work. That's pointless work. Everyone, if you could, you get out of it. What you actually see if you start to take a, a step back is with meaningful work, what we're saying is that you are bringing you to your, to your work. You're different than me. I'm different than you. You're bringing your authentic self, your hope for what your life can be. You're seeing work as an expression of, of who you are, the best intentions within you, and also your way of contributing around you. So if we start with that, of course, there, I'm sure you know someone who, was, who is or was a cleaner or was a bagger at a grocery store or some other job that often gets you know, mort mortician, um, you know, like all sorts of jobs that are just stigmatized for conventional reasons, let's say, and we don't often scrutinize our own baggage around jobs, but who love it? You know, so it's very easy. Cleaners are, are very easy to find folks, not everybody, uh, somewhat less, somewhat fewer cleaners than, you know, preschool teachers probably say this, but like, this is a way for me to contribute. Look at a cleaner in a hospital, low status, doctors pulling up in the Porsche, uh, they're taking the bus home, they feel like they are also frontline keeping people healthy. So that is one of the big shifts is that we don't go by job title, whether work is important. So that means we wouldn't go by salary, whether work is important, or at least we would shift the, the incentive structure. So we're not rewarding people for, you know, the most egregious reward disparities uh, that seem to exist right now are between inherited wealth and earned wealth. And, between uh, executive level uh, compensation packages and entry level compensation packages, right? So if we just take the what a what the 
most common, seemingly, and this is not my area, but the most common compensation packages seem to be to prop up stock prices and you're rewarded with stock. So it's, you know, if you do that, who cares what else you do? You call Bain in, Bain Consulting will cut 10% of your workforce and, you know, your stock price goes up. So you did a good job versus you, how can you demonstrate that you've helped someone? How can you demonstrate that you've made someone feel respected and noble? How can you demonstrate that um, you've been authentic and kind and collaborative towards uh, accomplishing a good outcome. Like if those were the performance metrics, which would map onto meaningful work, I think uh, you wouldn't see competition for the corner office. You might still see competition for a good parking spot. I mean, that's going to always kind of be there. But, you know, so if we rethink, like, what is it that we're prioritizing? We're actually blanking on what we're punishing. We're punishing meaning right now. There's a huge... Um, I think built-in meaning subsidy that our economy expects workers to pay. So high stress, low pay, um, very good jobs. Uh, we're just running people through in teaching, in nursing, in elder care. We're, we're paying them with meaning instead of rewarding them because they're working for meaning. So it's a, it's a, it feels like a big flip to me. And, and of course, we'd have flying cars. So that's the future of everything. Yeah. So, so the Jetsons find meaning in work. And that's, no, I, I think that's fantastic. Because what I hear you saying is basically calling for a paradigm shift that requires a changing of our narrative at the very core. So how do we even think about work and value as a society? Uh, which I also think means changing our education systems, which tend to prioritize urban life and work more than rural jobs um, as as being seen as more valuable, um, also tend to be uh, identified, you know, more value equals more pay. Um, mm -hmm. And you have higher paying jobs in cities, uh, which then leads to the abandonment of rural communities and farms. Um, but what I hear you doing, and correct me if I'm wrong, is basically calling into question all of that. Um, and says, so, so then, so then what I want to know is, um, if it's not all about money and it's not all about title, um, what's it all about? Or maybe that's too much of a philosopher question, not a psychologist question. So let me reframe it. What could a, an employer do, uh, differently to, to demonstrate a value of, of their employees? Uh, without just giving them more money, which would maybe be, maybe be reinforcing this sort of um, paradigm that we're wanting to shift away from. Yeah, yeah. Well, first of all, I also need to point out that there are some people for whom the accumulation of money and fancy things is is like authentically great for them. So I'm not arguing for a, like a money-free society. Um, I'm not saying that we go put seven plus billion people on a commune and you know free love or anything like that. I, I think that there's going to be, it would just be nice if the scales weren't 99% uh, zeros in your bank account and 1% are you doing something good in the world? You know, it just seems so out of balance. So I'm not, I'm not trying to tear down the system or create any sort of anarchy. I think if what we were really trying to do was support the type of work that you know, first of all, has to be safe and has some degree of respect towards the person doing the job. So there's no customers treating them like crap 
you know, in the, in the restaurant or in the grocery store or on the airplanes or all this sort of hostility we see around. We, we don't think that because of someone's job, they're worse because everyone has, is doing work that supports their humanity and their dignity as opposed to strips them of their life force and, you know, sends the money up the chain. So I think that there's, that's one thing that if we just infuse a little bit more of, and that doesn't happen very often in, in companies, I think, that where there's, a, there's an earnest effort to make employees feel valued for who they are and how they build um, value within the company per se. I also think a lot of companies, of course, are trying to survive in this system as well. And their incentives, providing value, creating value for a lot of companies right now is creating profit margins or assets or patents or something that can be turned into money. And that's just what co- companies have to do. So when all the incentives are that way from the top down, it's going to leave not that much room for incentivizing someone who um, you know, makes it easier for, for other coworkers to volunteer in, in the capacity that feels meaningful for them or integrating the community into the work that's being done or taking a less efficient route that's more ecologically friendly or more sensitive to the surrounding culture or community. I mean, like that stuff is... That stuff is uh, currently right now justified by charging higher prices for things, if you think about it, you know? So, so I think right. about um, two, there's two, I lo- there's two values-driven companies I like to point out because I think they're kind of on opposite ends of some, some spectra. So if we take a look at how Patagonia runs themselves and how Chick-fil-A runs themselves. So both are heavily values-driven corporations and the values are not, are not bullshit. They're real, right? They're they're doing actual things from HR to marketing to product management to open close hours. All of it is in line with what they say they do and who they say they are. Um, people who would be passionate about Patagonia might not be passionate about the same values set in Chick Fil A, and people who are passionate about the Chick Fil A values might not really love the Patagonia values. So there's going to be both of them, I would argue, from a, just a pure academic and shelf for this all the time because I'm not choosing sides. But I think that both of them are examples um, of kind of what it would look like if meaning was part of the equation, even to the extent that in Chick-fil-A's case, they're giving up one seventh of their revenue every week because they close on Sundays for their reasons. Right. There's a lot of things that go with that that are objectionable to some people. Patagonia running ads, don't buy this jacket, come bring it down. We'll try to repair it and we'll create new jackets out of the scraps. There's a lot of people find that objectionable. Is that creating enough jobs? Is that in the, you know, plastics industry or whatever it is, right? So I think that's one vision. And so if you are in the right place, every job in Patagonia is going to, and you're there, every job in Patagonia is going to feel important because it's all pushing towards something that we're all behind. You know, I don't know. My son worked for Chick-fil-A. I, I think he felt important most of the time, but he was mostly standing in blistering sun. Uh, so, but I, <laughs> they want people who are with them to feel good. And, and so I think I'll, I'll just leave it at that. But if you imagine that that's every company, mm-hmm. um, I think that is a, that's already one interesting step towards what we would imagine a really values-driven or really purpose-driven Company's going to be like. It's not going to be one where the CEO who just cash, you know, let's let's choose Tesla, right? Tesla's going to save us. They're going to put us on robot electric cars to Mars and, you know, all this sort of stuff. Elon Musk earned 36 
his net worth went up $36 billion in 24 hours this week. Uh, it's hard to work, I would guess, I don't know, I would guess like as much as he talks about whatever purpose or mission or value he sees in the people around him, when, he went, when his value went up $36 billion and someone who's working a 12-hour shift to try to get, uh, you know, at least one of the panels on the Tesla to fit, you know, that shift is being yelled at. It doesn't, it doesn't line up. I don't mean, I pick on Tesla because it's kind of a favorite of the progressive yeah. crowd. But, you know, I think like there's a difference when someone says, okay, you might have this out later, but I think uh, to pick on the non-progressive crowd, the January 6th insurrection, there were companies that came out like crazy and said, we're not going to back senators who supported this. And here they, here they are. You know what I mean? So like when you say you're going to do one thing because of values and then you don't, phoniness kills meaning every time. Phoniness trumps meaning every time. Mm. That's a great line. I love that. Phoniness kills meaning every time. And I think you just made somebody's day who's... Uh, who really loves to go hiking uh, while eating Chick-fil-A. So I think they're they're just like, yes, we can put these two together. And then the person working in the Tesla factory is like, I work 12 hours so I can put Chick-fil-A on the table and That's repair right. my Patagonia jacket. But um, okay, so you mentioned the word dignity, which I thought was a, a good one. And I wanna come back to that um, because I feel like there's something about, you mentioned safety, respect, dignity, um, that are, are other ways of demonstrating, um, like value, uh, of, of a person. Uh, so like, what would you say are some of the conditions to enable people to engage in meaningful work, especially given that so much of our society says, you said, you know, 99% is focused on the zeros in your bank account. Um, what are the major conditions that can enable people to engage in meaningful work? And then what are some of the major barriers uh, to engaging in meaningful work in our, in our current society? Yeah. Yeah, and I made that number up, 99%. I really have no yeah, idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's <laughs> how I make up numbers, too. So it's... That's right, a billion percent. Um, so so if we think about what leaders and organizations can try to keep in mind, I, uh, I was advised that no one will listen to me unless I have good acronyms for stuff, or at least acronyms. So I came up with an acronym uh, that sort of summarized the leading indicators in the research at the time I was working. It's PARMA. Uh, unfortunately, it's with a C rather than a K, so I never quite get things right, but, well, you know, karma, let's say. And so these are the, the, the principles that seem to operate within research done on leadership, research done on organizational practices at the end, policies and behaviors, or just even the culture. So the C is for clarity, and that's clarity of mission. And this is really to say that if you're about something, that's way better than not being about something as a company because it gives people something to cling to. And it, it says that you're out there with what you're trying to do in the world. And you see a lot of, uh, I don't know, it's almost like random word generators for, the, for company mission statements. But when a company has a mission, it, it, you can see it, right? And then, then it's the job of drawing those uh, lines of sight between what is that far off mission and how does it how does it percolate into how i'm supposed to do my job uh I, I, the second a no the first a i guess right, not to skip too far ahead the first a is authenticity and this is a bundle package of lots of these third wave leadership approaches you know, after transformational leadership where it's the inspiring steve jobs like leader 
there's a lot of emphasis on folks around ethical leadership, um, even charismatic leadership, and then authentic leadership. But this is essentially um, being a leader shouldn't be a show first. And then, uh, you know, you go home and you, you say other, <laughs> you say something completely horrible, but it brings in this idea of ethics. You should be living with at least the high, same high standards that you expect of your employees, but probably higher ones because you want to be a visible demonstrator of what is possible to real, when, how it's possible to work with meaning, to lead with meaning and to have integrity in what you do. Uh, the R is getting back to, um, what I think is maybe a little bit easier to manage version of good workplace relationships, which is just respect. Uh, you know, when you say you're supposed to, you know, have good relations with workers, I think, I don't know. I don't know why, but it seems to go wrong a lot. You know, it's like people expect it to be friendships, romances, or, or family relationships, and it just gets too enmeshed, and there isn't uh, there isn't like a playbook for that, but respect is pretty easy, right? You want to make sure people feel valued, that you're not working to make them feel worse than you, that you're trying to achieve some sort of, you know, parallel in terms of how much people are listening versus talking, that everyone feels like you're happy they're there. So respect to me seems like a, a smaller ask, but also maybe a more functional ask because you can just do it. You don't have to, <laughs> I can be respectful uh, to people who I don't like and people who hate me can be respectful to me and we don't have to go, you know, we don't have to go canoeing later or something. So the the M is mattering. And this is kind of another extension. Like it's not an employee's job to come in and figure out why they're important to the organization. By the time that they show up at your at your company or your organization, every worker should know not only that they matter, but exactly how they matter. So creating that, that map of like, when you do what you do, this is why it's so important to us. This is why it helps us do what we try to do as a big organization. Not like, oh, just go ask your coworkers. You're really important to us. Don't bother me with why, right? So make it really clear, make it visible. And I think that'll tie really tightly to the respect side. And then it frees everyone in the organization up to start experimenting with the final A, which is autonomy. People need to be um, seen as humans with desires, skills, differences, diversity, all sorts of different perspectives that come together for a common purpose, not, you know, chicken nuggets that are stamped into st the same shape so that they fit together according to some master plan. So autonomy is risky in some cases. You don't want a lot of, you know, showboating when it comes to to welding together a spacecraft, I suppose. But, you know, like in a lot of cases, you want people to be doing the work uh, as a human being. And that means allowing them to give you feedback on how it could go better, look for opportunities to expand it and just put a little bit of themselves into it and to welcome that instead of try to crush it out of folks. That's cool. I so I actually love karma um, and the fact you know, with the C though. Um, it's, it's, <laughs> you reap what you sow. That's, the, that's yeah. the whole idea. <laughs> you reap what you sow. Yeah. Um, so, I think some people might argue that uh, meaning—it's so subjective. You can't ever operationalize it. Uh, but what I hear in your sort of karma principles is perhaps something that's more or less universal to human well-being in the workplace. Would you—is is, that—is that true, or do you think? 
um, everybody is just, you know, 100% unique. And so there's no way to, to talk about meaning sort of with broad strokes. Everything's just the individual. Yeah. So I don't know if it's universal yet, because that's an, in, that's a, uh, empirical question. So we don't have data, uh, enough data to say like, yeah, this shows up here, it shows up there. Most places where we've explored it, these, these same concepts show up. I mean, uh, you know, I, Starting off with this stuff, when I was doing meaning, I just decided I wanted to do meaning research in about 2000. And there really wasn't much out there. And I got three kinds of feedback, essentially, when people learned. And these were smart people. Um, number one was, oh, I didn't know you're religious. Like, meaning and purpose. This is around the Rick Hansen purpose-driven life era. So it's like, well, purpose is only going to come up when you're talking about religion or you're about to die, right? So what does it have to do with a regular life? There was that. That, that was pretty easy to you know, converse around. The second was, isn't meaning too, uh, too vague or too obvious, right? Like, of course, the meaning of life is fill in your particular perspective. Everyone must have that. Or it's so obvious, meaning the meaning of life is... Uh, just to live it, you know, like everyone, ha like people have this immediate reaction was so obvious. It's not worth studying. It's like, do people have faces? Well, yes, they do. So why are you doing a research study on whether people have faces? And the second, the third response was it's too individualistic. There's no, you're never going to find the same answer for two people. And the truth of the matter is meaning in life, just like anything else, that's a human experience is pretty easy to operationalize. And then you you can develop all sorts of research infrastructure around that that helps us say that at least when we call meaning this, we see lots of really important outcomes that are powerful in the workplace, powerful in relationships, powerful in parenting, powerful in volunteering, powerful in intentions that we set for how we're going to live in the world, powerful whether we live or die, right? So whether that's all of meaning, it for sure isn't. And that's that's where the hard part gets. Like, how, like you mentioned the idea of collective meaning, like how do we do that? Like, I think the biggest pressing question that we have around meaning right now is, uh, I think we would acknowledge the power of someone who's motivated, fueled by a purpose for, for nefarious reasons or for noble reasons. But how, how would we help someone use purpose to refashion the world in a better way? How would we come together and find a group of people who have little in common other than that we breathe and we need water. How do we bring them together and help them forge this collective sense of meaning that says this is going to be worth sacrificing for? I don't think we know how to do that. So, so I have one question for you then, um, one last question, and that uh, has to do with hope. So given our, our world, the way that the things are structured, um, I think so often we feel like we're... Um, you know, we're being preformed into that sort of chicken nugget stamp. Um, there's, I mean, w in a context where so many people are feeling like they're being stripped of meaning, purpose, and value in order to put food on the table, um, is there anything that, that sort of emerging opportunities, new develops, or something else that just gives you hope in the midst of those challenges? Like reasonable hope or wild hope? I've got a lot of wild hopes around, yeah. <laughs> you know, some powerful people will change their mind. The obscenely rich will not be double obscenely rich someday. They could be half obscenely rich, like all these sorts of things. 
I think the incentive system that we have in place is very, very self-reinforcing. And so it's hard to, it's hard to break into it. At the same time, though, I think, well, there are, there are signs that um, in a vague way, people have had enough. It doesn't always find the right outlet. You know, like people kind of had enough that leads to some creepy influencers taking pictures of their abs all the time, maybe. But it also leads to people who are saying like, you know what? So-and-so isn't doing enough to make shoes out of non-plastic sources. So I'm going to create a shoe company that makes shoes out of algae. Like that's the, I've had enough. The big infrastructures aren't working for me. So I almost feel like that uh, being foiled, being uh, betrayed by the, the larger economy, not finding your spot is creating uh, for, for people who have just an irrepressible urge to make something good of their circumstances is creating new things that we just mm. aren't even seeing quite yet. I just read about a, a water filter bottle that has a permanent filter. If you boil it for 10 minutes every month, it will work to filter water forever. And there's not a single smidgen of plastic in it. Like, so like just someone just came up with that. They're annoyed. You know, so I think the great hope for humanity is how annoyed we're getting. Right. Uh, you know, so, so I do think that there's, I do think that there's hope. I think that, um, in this case, hope and despair go right hand in hand, though, because there, there, this isn't this isn't the 1950s where if we just make enough, you know, Ford Corvairs, eventually the world will be a happy place. It's a world where we have to do more with less, more people, faster, uh, at much lower impact, while also making people feel respected, whoever they are. So the challenges are huge. I don't, and right now the people in charge really seem to just want to stay in charge, and so I think. I think it's going to be all sorts of cookiness on the margins. It's going to be like <laughs> the burning man of the world economy. There'll be like 900 of them and eventually everyone will go to all of them. And I think it'll, I think there'll be some critical mass of gravity on the fringes that were the fringes. They won't ever become one center. There'll just be lots and lots of cool places people want to go and get a little bit here, get a little bit there. And there's going to be all sorts of cool crossbreeding. And eventually uh, there'll be enough folks doing that, that, uh, that we can make room for people who aren't able to innovate their way out of this catastrophe we're in. Hmm. Well, this has been a lot of fun uh, chatting with you. Uh, I, I, yeah. <laughs> yes, I hope to do it again sometime. Um, so thank you for taking the time, Mike. It's been, it's been really cool. For those of you who are listening, who want to know more about Mike's work, but um, don't want to, you know, the work that he has that's out there that uh, gives him meaning but uh, does not give him any money, uh, you can check out his website, uh, michaelfsteger.com. Um, yeah, anything else you'd like to say? I've got some very cringy videos on YouTube about me musing on meaning. If you really want to feel better about yourself, you can check some of those out. Those are also free. Uh, but no, I think the main thing that I would, I would want, to leave, want to leave people with is something I normally emphasize a lot. Like I'm... Um, designated in some ways a meaning in life expert, but I, I sh for sure I'm not. I just read and done research on people. People are the meaning in life experts, each of us, on trying to craft this this new vision, this new future, this this way of moving through life that makes it all worthwhile. Why are we here? We're here to do something noble and glorious with this opportunity. And we just want to keep that in mind that, you know, we. Just, just do some of that some of the time. We don't have to ignore it. You can, you can really make some of this cool stuff happen in your life.